Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. If you were here last Sunday for the first worship service of the year, um, I gave a challenge, an invitation to our church that this would be a year when each of us becomes recommitted to our relationship with God's word. And that if it's been a while since we've really dug into those scriptures, that the Bible would become a very important and central part of our daily life. And, and I'm, I've heard this before in the 80s when I was a youth group student, and it's stuck with me for years. A person whose Bible is worn out has a soul that is not worn out. Uh, and, and I think what my pastor meant was, you can look at the condition of a person's Bible. In those days, we used physical books, not smartphones. Um, and he said, if, if it's dog-eared pages and, and there's tears wrinkling the pages and there's lots of highlights and underlinings, that person's heart is probably in decent shape. But if their Bible looks like it's just off the showroom floor, their heart is probably a mess. Um, I think that's pretty true. And one thing that I said last Sunday that I want you to really remember is that the Bible is food for our soul. And if you don't eat, you will starve. And so much of what we're wrestling through in life is not because life is hard, but because we are so malnourished in our spirits. So that when we reach down to fight through life, we just have no strength to do it. Now, I really want you to hear me because if you're trying to force field away these words, saying, I'm not going to get into the book, I really want you to hear this invitation this year. If you don't do it, eventually, it will be the death of you spiritually. If you neglect God's word in your personal walk, it will be the death of your faith. I don't see much future in the faith of a person who will not listen to God's voice in their life. And so I want to issue that invitation, but also in the form of a challenge. Now, one of the things I said last Sunday was, even though Bibles have flooded our society, they're everywhere. In fact, every average American household has about 4.4 copies of the Bible. And so it's everywhere, and yet only one out of five American Christians read the Bible every day. A lot of people have cast theories about why Bible readership is so weak in our country when we're one of the freest, wealthiest, most Bible-flooded cultures in the world. Why is Bible readership so anemic in the United States? And I've heard some really interesting and compelling theories. One of them is that part of the reason for weak Bible readership is we read it the wrong way. We read it as if the Bible is not actually the document it is, but as if we're making it into something else. We're reading it as though it were some fragmented collection of things. And so uh, maybe we read it like it's Aesop's fables. Some really nice stories with a good moral lesson afterwards. Sometimes we read it like it's chicken soup for the soul. God, my heart is hurting. Give me sweet words that will comfort me. You know, other times we read it like the Analects of Confucius. I need some wise sayings because I'm stupid and I don't know what to do here. Guide me. And other times, we read it for some very practical guidance or information, the way we might refer to the owner's manual in our car glove compartment. Who, what kind of nerd, other than my dad, who gets a new car and actually takes out the owner's manual and reads the whole thing like a book? All right. Nerds, all of you, nerds. All right. Well, some people do that. Most people will never read 
their owner's manual that way. It'll stay in the glove box until they realize the mechanic goes, hey, how do you undo the wheel locks? And you're like, I have wheel locks? <laughs> and that's when you open it and you go, what is this? And you look under W because you only look at it when you need that specific information. So you see that in a way... All four of those are true and valid aspects of the benefit we draw from Scripture, but if that's the only way you're reading it is as this collection of different kinds of fragmented literature, you've really missed the point of what makes the Bible so powerful. And I think this kind of approach to Scripture reveals that we don't think of the Bible really as a historical book, as something that is deeply rooted in the earthy, real-life, flesh-and-blood world of human beings in time and space. Now, I, I, I don't want to say a lot of negative things about other holy books, but I want you to compare and contrast the Bible to the Book of Mormon or the Quran. The Book of Mormon was entirely the revelation of God, so he says, to one man, Joseph Smith, who in the privacy of that very strange encounter wrote down an entire book which became an entire religion's holy book. The same thing happened, although over a little longer period, with the Quran. One man, Muhammad, went into a cave. God spoke to him, and over decades, he began writing down everything God told him. So again, these are books written by one person that has affected millions over time. The Bible is so completely different. The Bible is the product of at least 40 authors writing over 1,600 years, and they're writing about a God who has interacted with, revealed himself to, and touched the lives of literally millions of people in a very public and open way. The Bible is not simply one man's private recording of what he believes God said to him only, but it is what God has been saying to the human race since pretty much the beginning. The Bible is unique in that it's not just a collection of religious sayings, but it is a record of God walking with the human race from the beginning of our history. And this is a God who is deeply rooted in real stuff. And that's why even though you're reading those tiresome genealogies, you're like, I really, I can't care anymore about who begat who. But the reason those genealogies are so important is they remind us that our God moved through real families. These are real human beings who lived in real countries, farmed real land, had real babies. They lived their lives just like us, and they are historical beings. And that's why it's so critical for us to remember that the Bible we read is also a historical document. I think it's especially important when I'm setting up a series like the book of James, which has so many practical commands. It is so... Um, hands-on. It's not very high, lofty theology. You don't have all kinds of, of strange, abstract concepts. It's really about what we're supposed to do as followers of Jesus. And because it's that way, I think it's especially important, as I set up this book, that, it, that we really lay the, the, the foundation well. So what I'm going to do this morning is I'm not going to dive right into the book of James. I'm going to introduce you to the book of James and to the man who wrote this book. I want to set the table historically so that you understand, before we just jump into a letter, we have to ask some of the right questions to get some of the right answers about this letter, or we will fail to get the full impact of what this writing is about. So when you're dealing with a letter, one of the first questions you might be tempted to ask is, who wrote it? Who wrote it? Authorship. Right away in the beginning, here's what he says. James a servant of God 
and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. So the easiest answer to who wrote the book of James is James did. That's why it's called James. But in the New Testament, because he's so sparse, so sparing in his introduction, he doesn't give us any more qualifiers. This could refer to any Christian dude named James. And that's the problem is that there are at least four Jameses introduced to us in the New Testament. And so we need to narrow down which James is it exactly. And you'll understand why this is so important because when you understand who wrote it, you understand a lot about the background, the, the perspective, and the, state, the frame of mind of the person who's writing these things. So our first candidate is James, the son of Zebedee. That's John's brother. Remember James and John? They were brothers who followed Jesus. He was one of the 12. The second candidate is James the Lesser, otherwise known as James the son of Alphaeus. He was also one of the 12 disciples. The third is James the father of Judas. Not Judas Iscariot, but the guy, the, the disciple, one of the 12 that they called Thaddeus. So he's just the dad of Thaddeus. Just mentioned in passing. And finally, there's James, the brother. Some people say the half-brother. I don't really like that phrase. Yes, obviously, not all of Jesus' brothers were conceived by the Holy Spirit, so they are all technically half-brothers. But a brother is a brother, right? A brother is a brother. And so it's James, the brother of Jesus. These are the four Jameses we, we see in the New Testament. Which one of these guys wrote the book? Well, James, the son of Zebedee, one of the 12, is a very prominent member of this group of 12. And he is a good candidate, except for the fact that he was martyred um, in the year 44. It's very close to to when we believe that the, the book was actually written. So it's very unlikely that the timing would have worked out well for him to be the author. The problem with James the Lesser is that nobody knew who this guy was. And so it's unlikely he would have had the influence or the reputation to write a letter that was so quickly and widely accepted by the, the Christian church. The third James, his claim to fame was that he was somebody's daddy. And that's, that's the only time he's mentioned. So it's very unlikely he was the author. So it really leaves us with really one leading candidate, and that is James, the brother of Jesus. I don't know if you, uh, probably some of us didn't even know Jesus had siblings. I, I'm not going to ask you for a show of hands, but it wasn't until my adult years that I realized, I paid attention to this little fact, dude, Jesus had like a family. I always pictured Joseph, Mary, and the Son of God. But there were all these other rugrats running around that house, and they were Jesus' brothers and sisters. And so I think it's very, very compelling to think about the fact that the guy who grew up in the same family in the same house with Jesus Christ wrote a letter about the Christian life. Now, when was it written? When was it written? Well, we know this. James was martyred in the year 62 AD, roughly 30 years or so after Jesus was, was killed and rose again. He was killed by stoning at the order of the high priest Ananus. And this sneaky guy, he wanted to get rid of this Christian sect that was rising. So he waited opportunistically until the Roman procurator named Festus died. And in the transition of leadership, as people were figuring out who else is going to rule this region in the Roman Empire, he orders that James would be put to death by stoning. And in the transition of government, no one noticed that this one obscure religious leader had been killed. And so James was killed very unjustly and in a very sneaky, opportunistic way in the year 6280. So we know that was the outer marker of when it could have been written. But most scholars, for a number of reasons, believe that it was most likely written in the mid-40s, the mid-40s. 
Think about this. If James was written in, let's say, the year 44 A.D., anywhere in the range that we believe it was written, it was about 12 to 17 years after the events of the Passion Week, after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So roughly it's like this. Uh, When James is writing this, the events of his brother's death and resurrection are still very fresh in his mind. The Christian movement is still very exciting, very young. There's a lot of momentum. Remember the year 2000, Y2K? How many of you guys remember Y2K? I was working in IT at the time. I was wearing two pagers. I stayed up all night waiting for it, the whole world to come. We're, we thought planes were going to fall out of the sky. Do you remember that? Talk about a dud. I mean, everybody's all agitated, and Y2K comes and pfft, nothing. But how vivid are your memories of New Year's Eve 1999 to 2000? Do you guys remember that? It's still very vivid for me. I still have very clear recollections of details from that year. And that's the time gap between the time that Jesus was was killed and rose again and that James is writing this letter. If this is actually the date of the writing of James, then James actually becomes for us the earliest book in the New Testament that was written. Even though it appears at the end of the New Testament, it's actually chronologically one of the earliest Christian writings we have available. And that's interesting because James is writing largely when Christianity was a movement of Jewish converts. And it it gives us a window into what Christianity was like just in its nascency when it was getting started. A third question you want to ask about a letter is, so we've already asked who wrote it, when was it written? A third important question is this, who was it written to? That makes a big difference as well, because if you understand who the target audience is, you begin to understand why the author is writing in the way that he does. And as far as authorship, or the audience goes, James is very explicit in who his intended audience is. He's writing to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. That's really language for what we call the Jewish diaspora. Um, Jews were scattered everywhere, um, partly because after the, the... height of the kingdom and the civil war that followed, Israel never fully regained its momentum as a nation. And one after another, foreign empires, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and now the Romans had basically beat them up, scattered them all over the place, exiled them here and there. So as a result, what you have are Jewish people no longer just living in Israel, but scattered all over the Roman Empire, forming communities in just about every city. And the gospel had begun to take many of these Jewish communities by storm, and there were believers scattered all over the place. And it is to these Christian Jews that James is writing. And it's clear that he's not just writing to Jews. I, I, it's not entirely clear to everybody, but after reading and researching, I really believe the content of the book of James makes clear that James is writing to Jewish Christians, not just to Jews in general, but to Jewish Christians. And if you look at the, the repeated themes that come up in the book of James, it's very evident that the people he's writing to are struggling. These are not comfortable, happy, wealthy people. Most of the people James is writing to are under duress. They're either economically on the lower end of their society or they're being oppressed unjustly. Even if they are wealthy, there are others who are skirting the law and being immoral in the way that they're trying to get their wealth from them. And so these people uh, are really struggling through life. Now, here's an interesting thing that happens to a lot of people. They meet Jesus, and the inner life is scrambled up and made new. And yet you go back from that experience to the same old life you always had to live before. 
And so James is writing this letter, in the, and this is very relevant to many of us. When we met Jesus, it was probably at a getaway, a retreat or a conference or a revival meeting. And in that special place, isolated away from everything, I, I know this is the way I got saved. In Deerfield, Illinois, at a, a youth conference, I got saved, and for those three days, I was on a glorious mountaintop with Jesus. Any of you guys relate to that experience? You just get away from everything. You're so close to God. And then what happens? You come home, and the first thing that happens is your mom is yelling at you. Ah, you guys went away for a whole weekend just to play with your friends. And look, you left all your laundry. And I'm like, ma, first of all, we weren't playing with our friends. I was getting saved, and I was in this good mood. I was going to, like, do all these nice things for you. Now you're just yelling at me. And it's like the inside is made new, but nothing on the outside has changed. I meet the Savior. I'm born again, and yet I'm still living in the same junk I've always lived in. I'm still married to the same person. I still have the same kids. My job is still the same job. My checking account still has the same balance. Nothing else changes but the inside. And that's a tension for a lot of people. Because somehow inside, there's a seed that is germinating to new life. It's the good soil. Ah, right? It's sprouting, and yet it's sprouting in the midst of really circumstances that feel very familiar. Very discouraging, very old. So James is writing to people like this saying, you are new Christians trying to live and reconcile this new faith with an old way of life. And he's trying to give them guidance to say, really, this new faith is more than just changing the inside. God intends to help you navigate the real world you live in because of this faith. I think that's in part why the tone and the content of James is so... um, it's so practical. It's so earthy. Now, get, hear that correctly. Not earthly, but earthy. It's, it's very down-to-earth, very grassroots, Midwestern almost, if you will, in the, the, the way that James writes. Now, the last question I want to explore about the book of James is who is this guy exactly? We know at one level he was the brother of Jesus, okay? James the man. He was the brother of Jesus. Look at this. Mark 6.3 tells us that Jesus had at least four brothers and some sisters. It's just so um, indicative of the culture that I guess the girls didn't count enough to even be counted. Um, But the the boys are not only numbered but named, right? Um, Jesus apparently has... So after the Holy Spirit um, impregnates Mary, she has this miraculous birth and the angels and the shepherds and all that. The wise men come. Imagine following that birth up. like... (laughs) Let's go to the hospital. It's not going to happen again, right? But they didn't stop having children. Apparently, Joseph and Mary continued to have kids. They had at least four boys and an undisclosed number of girls afterwards. His brother's names were James, Joses, also known as Joseph, Judas, also known as Jude, who would also then go on to write the epistle called Jude, which is right before Revelation, at the end of the Bible, right? And then um, Simon. So he has four brothers and some sisters. And it it just kind of, it's interesting that Jesus and his family didn't live in the big house up high on the hill, far away from everybody else. Even though he was the son of God, his dad was pretty much a blue-collar manual laborer, and they lived right there in the neighborhood with everybody else. They were part of the community in Nazareth. In fact, it was their absolute normalness and familiarity that led all the people in Nazareth to kind of listen to Jesus talking and say, who is you? It's son of God, Messiah. We know who you are. You're like James's older brother. You're Joseph and Mary's kid. You live down the street from us. You ain't no savior or Messiah. 
they poo-pooed his claim to be who he was because they knew him so well. And that really is a great encouragement to me, that when Jesus, our Savior, lived on the earth, he didn't live like part of the elite far away from the rabble. He lived right in a normal neighborhood with brothers and sisters, I'm sure, who are always stealing his stuff, short-sheeting his bed, picking on him. I'm sure he had to deal with uh, under-resourced family, having to share the dessert. I'm sure Jesus, as the oldest brother, how many of you are the oldest in your family? Raise your hand. Oldest. So you know you had to make tons of sacrifices all the Your parents are always going, you're the oldest. Give your little brother or your little sister a little extra piece of pie, a little extra cake. I, I grew up as the oldest, never getting anything extra, but always having to give a little extra. That's just the way it was in my family. And so it's it just really a great encouragement to me that the earliest part of Jesus' life for 30 years was just this normal family life. He didn't become a public figure till he turned 30. And prior to turning the age of 30, Jesus was just a dude in Nazareth living with his brothers and sisters and his parents in a house. That's all he was. And you know what's so amazing to me is we don't have much of a written record about that, but I think James is about as close as we get because now we're reading about faith from a guy who lived with Jesus under that same roof for those 30 years. He had to grow up in a house where Jesus was his oldest brother. And I think that's an amazing thing. But here's the thing. It wasn't just the neighbors who disbelieved who Jesus was, but it seems like his siblings also caught that spirit and shared the neighbor's opinion of their brother. Because it says here in John chapter 7, verses 3 to 5, they were kind of mocking him. They were watching him do his ministry, and he was considering, should I move, or move on to another place? And he said, of course, leave here. Go to Judea where your followers can see your miracles. You can't become famous if you hide like this in this backwater town. If you can do such wonderful things, go ahead, show yourself to the world. Now, that, if you stop reading there, you might think they're just trying to encourage him. But look at the last sentence, for even his brothers didn't believe him. So the story behind Jesus' family is that while he was on the earth, his own family never really believed who he was. They never believed him. And that's important in a detail because later on, as James ascends in his position in the church and writes this letter, that's going to have a bearing on the tone with which he writes, his perspective, his attitude towards Jesus. Because for all of that family life, those early years, James never really believed that his brother was who he was. They, they, they even, even during his early ministry years, he shared the opinion of his neighbors saying, who do you exactly think you are? You're just our brother. Listen to what it says, though. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, talking about the, the resurrection appearances of Jesus. I'm sorry, I don't think I, I've got that. It didn't make it into the slides. But here's what it says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 4 through 7. That after Jesus was dead and buried, he rose from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said, and he appeared to a bunch of people. He, he appeared first to Peter and then the 12 apostles, and then he appeared to about 500 of his followers. And then it says here, after that, he appeared to James. That's a very, very important encounter because after meeting all the people who were his true spiritual family, Jesus took the time to go find his blood relative. 
He went to find James, which he presumably was the oldest of the brothers after him. And he said, look, James, I know that for the early part of my life and my ministry, I was just your older brother. And then you started hearing crazy stuff that I was saying. You started hearing crazy stuff being said about me. But you never really believed. And on the day that I was put to death on the cross, none of you guys, my brothers and sisters, were even there. The only member of our family who was showed up at the cross at my crucifixion was mom. So I know that you never really believed. But you heard that I was dead and now here I am. You're going to have to deal with this. Can you imagine what an awkward encounter that must have been? For the younger brother of Jesus to encounter his brother, I guess maybe you were more than just my older brother. I guess maybe you have power over death. I, I don't know about you, but have any of you ever had a, a, a radical rethinking of who your siblings were? I did. In the early years of our life, I really thought my brother was very stupid. Um, everybody thinks their brother's stupid. I really thought he was very stupid. I like, like, you know, below average stupid because he didn't talk that much and he was kind of sneaky and kept to himself. And then he grew older. And I remember one day after he got into high school and I was listening to him talk about something and I realized, holy cow, my stupid brother is actually a genius. And I just remember how uncomfortable and strange that felt to have thought a certain way about someone so close to me for so many years and suddenly realize how wrong I had gotten it. And then I started thinking back to our early life and I realized this guy wasn't stupid. He was crazy genius, evil wizard kind of smart. He's plotting on me all that time. And, and so in a way, I kind of had this experience of James in looking at someone who I thought I really had pegged and going, my goodness, it's nothing like what I thought. And so Jesus, and I love this about Jesus, he could have just, because remember what he said, this is my brother, this is my sister, this is my mother and father are the ones who believe in me, follow me, do my will, that's my family. And so that's the spiritual family he appears to first. And he could have just gone on with his business. But Jesus remembers that in this earth, he grew up in a house with real people. These were his brothers, his sisters, and he went to them. And as a representative of that family, he appears to James and says, James, I know we never really quite saw eye to eye on some of this stuff, but it is so heavy on my heart that you should now know who I am and confess that you believe in me. And he takes the time to visit his brother James. And that made all the difference in James's life. That made all the difference in James's life. In this short book of James, there's 108 verses, and in those 108 verses, there are 59 commands. It's clear that the way James sees his faith, it's not about believing only, but Christianity is a thing that we do. And that's why in 108 short verses, there are 59 commands given. It's as if James is saying, yeah, believe, but also do. Keep doing this and keep doing that. He has a very practical mindedness regarding his faith. And a lot of people have said that that makes it less than the gospel of grace. That somehow you don't really see Christ show up in the book of James. You don't see the gospel of grace and mercy and undeserved marriage show up. I don't think that's true at all. I think that's presumed by James. James was no stranger to the gospel of grace and mercy. 
In, in chapter 2, verse 13, he says explicitly, for mercy triumphs over judgment. The gospel of grace is well known to James, and he's acquainted with it, but not only theologically, but at a very deeply personal level. What do you think it was like to stand before his resurrected brother, knowing all his years that he was trying to struggle against the grain, his own family never had his back? His own... And some of you know exactly what this feels like. You had to scrape together a life and all that struggle, your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, never once cheered you on, never once had your back. Your friends cheered you on, but your own family constantly tore away at you. Now, that's not everybody's story, but I know there are people in this room, that's your deep scar, your wound you carry around with you. It's your own family never once really had your back. And imagine that encounter and how awkward and guilty James must have felt now that his brother was vindicated, standing before him, holes in his hands, scar in his side, alive after he'd been dead. What do you think happened in that conversation? It's not recorded for us, but I got to imagine it was something like, Jimmy, come on, look at me, I'm here. And I imagine James going, dang, my bad. Seriously, my, my real bad. You are who you say you were. I see. I cannot fight it anymore. I believe. But at the same time, I'm sure that a big part of what James is feeling is, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry. Seeing who you are today, I should have believed in you. Of all the people who should have been cheering you on, your own brother, should have been me. And I'm really sorry that among all the mockery and the jeers and the unbelief, me and the rest of our brothers and our sisters, we joined with the crowds and not with you. Now, as he's pouring out his confession, what do you think his older brother's response was? Do you think Jesus took James in a headlock and gave him a noogie and said, you idiot, I told you I was going to come back. That's probably what we would do. If I were Jesus, I'd be like, you fool, I told you, you stupid. You should have believed. That's not what Jesus does. What Jesus does everywhere is he reconciles himself to people. He releases. He forgives. The gospel of grace was not just a theological construct for James. It was what bound him back to his older brother again after a very, very awkward encounter that he never expected to have. And so even though James is filled with very practical, earthy commands, undergirding all of that is this, that James understood that his new lease on life was because his brother, the savior of humanity, was gracious and forgiving, somebody who releases people of their past failings and gives everybody a new lease, a second chance. Now, as I read the tone of James's letter as well, here's the last thing I want to point out to you. Listen, there's something so real and authentic about it. If Jesus had come in our day, I don't think he would have been the kind of religious leader who spoke King James English and spoken these and thous. I think he would have spoken in normal language. And the way that James writes about faith, it's so like everyday stuff. And look at some of the themes we're going to cover in this series. James talks about things like, how do you get through tough times without losing your joy? How do you treat everybody, rich or poor, with dignity and respect? How do you face the temptations that are always going to be your weak point 
and not give in to that decision to sin? How do you discern between being truly wise and just being well-educated? How do you control this wild animal we call our tongue? Because every one of us has said words we wish we could take back. You can't unsay a word. And so watching, and, and, and this is one of the things James is talking about. How do you tame the tongue? How do you live fully engaged in this moment, never mind tomorrow that might never come? And how do you pray when you're desperate in a way that God answers those prayers? This is the stuff that concerns us every day. This is real life that we're talking about. And I wonder why James seems to tackle these subjects and not others. He left it to Paul to talk about predestination and, and eschatology and all those other things, the final resurrection. Uh, he left it to Paul to write all that. When James writes, he writes about faith in action. He writes about faith embodied in real flesh and blood, a faith that is not for the classroom alone, but for family life. I think a lot of that had to do with after seeing his resurrected brother, he looked back over his childhood and realized all the while I thought Jesus was some smug, self-righteous jerk, he had actually lived out everything he ever preached. In Jesus' faith was an earthiness and a normalness that was so detractive, so winsome, and that's the faith James embraced. That's the faith he's teaching to those he influences. That Christianity is not just about having the right theological answers to the big questions of life. But you see a person's Christianity in the way they treat other people. You see a person's Christianity in the words that slip out when they're not on their guard. You see a person's Christianity in how they face the thing that they're weakest against. And they come out smiling and triumphant. I love that even in this introductory verse, it's so simple. There's such an approachability. You know that word greetings that's highlighted there? That's the most informal, common form of greeting you can give in this kind of Greek. It's like he said this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, hello. (laughs) That's exactly how it would sound today. Hello. Hey. What's up? It's that simple, approachable, normal kind of tone that I think he inherited from his brother who wasn't a stuffed shirt. He wasn't the reverend doctor, Lord Jesus of Nazareth. He was just Jesus. He said things like, hello. In fact, that same form of hello appears in Jesus after he's resurrected and appears to his disciples. And he says, hello. (laughs) I love it. I love that that's our savior. He doesn't say greetings and salutations from the other side of death. He says, hello, I'm back. And unlike the epistles of Paul and Peter, there isn't this long um, preamble where he, he legitimizes what he's writing by saying what his office is. Peter and Paul often started the letters by saying, we are apostles, we are this, we are that. James and also his brother Jude, both of them the brothers of Jesus, never a member of the, the inner circle of 12, when they opened their letters, though they could rightfully be called apostles, high leaders, bishops, here's how they identify themselves. I'm James, a slave of my older brother Jesus Christ. And how interesting that the two letters written by Jesus' two younger brothers both start almost identically that way that the only thing that they say about themselves 
is that they are the slaves of their older brother, their Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe it was because they were never part of the twelve. Maybe it expressed a humility that they disbelieved him until very late in life. But I can tell you this, when they saw who their brother was, they bowed their knees and believed. And they made up for lost time. They would go on to ascend in the church community to pursue their faith with great zeal. You know, that story reminds me so much of my maternal grandfather who came to Christ in his 80s after a lifetime as a half-hearted Buddhist. My grandmother was a strong Buddhist, and you know how my grandfather was just like so many men, dragged along to temple just like we're dragged along to church. My grandfather, was a, he loved laughing. He loved technology. He never really liked religion. He would go to the temple and just, uh, are we done? And then he met Jesus in his 80s. And my goodness, did he make up for lost time. I think in the three years he had left, he read the Bible maybe 12 times at least. There was such a new kind of joy I would see on his face. One of the people I miss the most in this world is my, my grandfather. When he laughed, he laughed with such joy. And the way that he embraced his faith in his last few years inspires me. He went eight decades walking away from God. But those last three made up for it. It was like he was coming to life. And I believe that's the story of James. Is that he would come to life because of his brother Jesus. And that the things he's writing that we will study together represent the way that he understood what this new life was like because his brother conquered death and gave him a new lease on life. It's my prayer that as we go through this series, God would invite you each Sunday to think about where your life is in each of these very important, earthy areas of day-to-day life. It's my prayer that God would lead you to great victory and genuine life change in some of these areas that for years you've been struggling with and have never been able to dig out of, that God would use the Gospel of James, the book of James, to really do a deep work in your heart and rescue you from a faith that is only in the head and not in the hands and the feet and the heart and the mouth. Why don't we bow and pray together? One of the things I love about God's word is that it is so rich that even from the opening greeting, we can gain a better picture of who he really is, how he works in people's lives. I know that um, this kind of introductory historical background is not everybody's cup of tea, but I don't want you to miss the point here, that our God moved through real people's lives. And the same God who for 30 years hung out in a small family residence in the backwater town of Nazareth is hanging out at your house too. He's not a different God. He's not more or less present with us. And every day this real God cares about our real lives. This is our God. He's not far away. He's right here. He's watching. He cares. And so as we anticipate the series ahead, which will take us through the rest of winter and into spring, let's ask the Lord to do that work in us. God, make this a faith 
I live out with my hands and feet as well as my heart and my mind. Let's say that one prayer together as a church and then I'll invite the praise team to lead us into singing. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.